0: I want you to seriously think about a specific time in your life where you felt very out of control. So put something in your mind right now where you just did not have the capacity to control what was going on in your life. Maybe it could be something like during Hurricane Michael a few years ago, where probably most of us figured that it'd be like every other hurricane that came through Bainbridge, right, or threatened to come through Bainbridge, that by the time it got here it would die out. But Little did we know at night that trees would be falling all around our houses, uh, house two doors down, a tree fell right through the living room, and it was a very out of control feeling for sure as you sat there and you waited, to what's going to happen next? Maybe you think about a time uh, more, uh, maybe where somebody in your family, maybe you were sick, maybe things were happening in your life, somebody was on the verge of death or passed away and there was nothing you could do about that situation or maybe a time where you were in an airplane and turbulence happened, right? And and uh, you didn't know whether you were going to make it through it or not. Think of a time that you were felt out of control. As you read the Psalms and as we've studied in the Psalms, over half of the Psalms were written by David, and most of the Psalms that he wrote about were about times when he was out of control, his life was out of control, he was reaching for God, God, I need you in this moment. And there's so much we can learn from the Psalms. We talked a lot about Psalms and what they were written for and so on. But a lot we can learn from the Psalms is that should be just the general trajectory of our life. Think about it for a second. If every day that we woke up and said, God, today is out of my control, that would be a good thing. As Paul told us, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And it sounds like God doesn't want us to think we have to control our lives that he wants to control our life. He wants to determine the path that we're on each day. And so as we talk about Psalm 86, it's a very typical psalm for David, especially at the beginning where he cries out to God for help. He admits his desperation. And so as we read verses 1 through 7, just think about your own personal situation and think about whether you depend upon God like this or not. David writes in verse 1, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. Let's pray, and we'll look at Psalm 86. Father God, we all, if we're honest with ourselves right now, we would admit that we're guilty of what David is really a perfect picture of, a man who lacked a heart that was united for your glory, that many times in his life that he brought on very much self-inflicted suffering through his actions, through his sin. But yet, God, we find a man who truly loved you and wanted to worship you. And God, I pray today as we talk about what it means to have a divided heart, God, I pray that you will help us to seek you, seek your grace, so that we can live fully and holy for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So David struggled with what the Bible refers to as a divided heart. David's life was a picture of a lot of success, and it was a picture of a lot of failure. And today's text should be an encouragement to us, because honestly, we know we all have a divided heart. We do. We have at varying levels, at varying times, our hearts' affections are divided. Our actions are not always consistent with what God tells us to do. But yet in Acts chapter 13, Paul, when he's preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, in verse 22 of that passage, he writes this For he says, And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So how could David, a man who committed such terrible sins, we talked about this several weeks ago, how could he be a man after God's own heart? God, in his grace, chose David to lead Israel. And in his grace, he continues to pursue all of us who are truly his children. He does not let go and quit on his children. And I love what David says in Psalm 37 25. He says, I have been young, but now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or the children begging for bread. He reinforces this idea that God doesn't quit on his children. In Christ, we're righteous. We've been declared righteous. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have a, what theologians call an alien righteousness. You've been giving something that you don't deserve. It's not from you. It's from God completely. And because of that, he loves you unconditionally. He chose you. He gave you his gift of salvation. And as a result, he, you are loved by him no matter what happens no matter the circumstances that you find yourself in. I love Romans chapter 8, the entire chapter, but verse 32, Paul writes this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave Jesus, Paul's line of thought here, if he gave Jesus for your salvation, What makes you think he won't continue to give you everything you need to live the life he's called you to live? He's given you everything you need. If you can look at the cross and not see the extent that God went to to secure your salvation and give you your righteousness, then you're missing out on much of the power source that you have to continue to live the life that Jesus has called you to live. You look at the cross, you reflect upon the cross, and you see the amazing work that he did for you on your behalf. So God is faithful to complete what he began in you, setting you apart as his holy child to reflect his character. And we can be certain of this truth through many scriptures, and we can also be certain of this truth as well, where Jesus told us through many, I'm sorry, where where Acts tells us through many tribulations We must enter the kingdom of God. And so you have David, who suffered greatly, often at the expense of his own demise because of things that he did. You had him suffering, and we look at our lives and we see suffering, because God uses suffering to get our attention and draw us closer to himself. And that's what we find in David, and that's what we find in our own lives. Verse 1 again, Incline your ear, O Lord, answer me, I'm poor and needy. David was a powerful king, probably the most powerful ruler at one point of the entire earth, yet he sees himself as poor and needy, and we know he finds himself in situation after situation that's beyond his control. And we need, get this, we need difficult circumstances because we need to grow in our faith, and usually God uses these kind of things to get our attention that other things don't work, right? When things are easy and comfortable, doesn't really get our attention and help us depend upon God more. God help me to make it to the beach today, right? I mean, we don't really depend upon God when life's easy. And and scripture the theme again throughout is the fact that God uses suffering, things beyond our control in order to make us depend more upon him. Verse 2, "Preserve my life," David says. For I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. So he says, I'm I'm godly. Is he suggesting that he deserves for God to answer his prayer based upon how good he is? Absolutely not. But again, David knows that he belongs to the Lord. He knows he's he says he's the Lord's servant. Speaks of dependence upon God. He knows who he is. He depends upon God, even though we find times where he just does things that are so contradictory to who he is in his character. Verse 5, look, he acknowledges his simpleness and his need for God. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He owns it, and not just in this psalm, but in many psalms. He just owns it, the fact that he needs God's forgiveness. And look, he bases his petition for help and forgiveness on the character of God. On the character of God. He says, for you, O Lord, you're good. And he says, you abound in steadfast love to all that call upon you. So God's ready to forgive. God's eager to forgive his children. And I I can't help but think of Jesus' words when he says, if your earthly father provides these things for you, How much more would your Heavenly Father provide this for you? So if you know you're God's child, it's a good thing that you're here today. That's a step in the right direction. There's something in your heart that's drawing you to the Word, drawing you to the church community. But only you and God knows your true heart because we know that many times there are people who for years and years go through the motions that truly don't know Jesus. But if you truly are His child, He doesn't stop working on you. I love F.B. Meyer, his quote, when he says, We are blinded by sin and cannot believe that God is ready to forgive. We think that we must induce him to forgive by tears, promise of amendment, religious observance. Oh, clasp these words to your heart. Say it over and over again. Ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. So David, on one hand, says, I'm godly. And then on the other hand, he says, I need your forgiveness. I'm struggling. And in that, we see ourselves. We see what David sees is this divided heart that exists. And he gets to that specifically in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. To fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever. So David asked God to unite his heart. The NLV says it this way it says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And I think when it comes to our sanctification, just a big word, which means becoming more and more like Jesus in your life, which all children of God do progress in sanctification, although there's times we go up, down, We go up, but the trajectory should be you continue to be more and more like Christ as you walk with him, and the longer you're a believer. But I believe there's no bigger obstacle in the life of Christians other than a divided heart. And I want us to think deeply about this this morning, this idea of a divided heart. Jesus used many different metaphors to describe himself and the path to eternal life. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then in Matthew 7:14 he says, "But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is very difficult and only a few ever find it." It's narrow because Jesus is the only way and then John 14:6 he says that he says, "I'm the way. I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." So Jesus gives this picture. He's this narrow gate. He's the only way to life. And if you're a true Christian, you came to the point where you realized that you needed Jesus to secure the eternal, abundant life that he offers for you. And much like David, that included a time where you said, I'm poor and I'm needy. I need you, Jesus. So think about when you came to Christ. Maybe some of you, you don't know the exact Moment of that, maybe you were uh, coming to church, part of a, a group or something, some people were sharing Christ with you, and at some point it just clicked, but you're not really sure where that was. Others of you know exactly when that moment happened for you, but you came to a point where you realized, I don't got it, right? I, I, I don't have what it takes. Jesus is the narrow way, and I need him. And, and hopefully you heard this part of it. Unfortunately, many people didn't. It's going to be a hard road. It's going to be joy-filled, and it's going to be, Jesus said, take, I'm going to take my, your burden with you. I'm going to carry it with you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm going to go along with you on this journey, but it is a hard, narrow road, and not many find it. But after you came to faith in Christ, you began to live the Christian life, and at some point you realize this thing that we're talking about here, the divided heart, Began to surface and emerge and became very, very clear. Usually, after the initial honeymoon of your salvation ended a couple weeks, three weeks, a month, two months later, and you begin to see the reality is that you are divided, that you struggle. Yes, I'm godly, but I'm a sinner. I'm godly, but I'm a sinner. I'm struggling, and I love the way that. Rankin Wilburn, in his book, Union with Christ, talks about his own personal frustration when he first experienced this after his salvation. He said, What was wrong with me? Why wasn't the gospel doing its deep work in my heart? The gap loomed large between what the gospel said was true of me I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, I'm secure and how I saw myself, which there was this chasm between what I said I believed and what I was experiencing. I felt discouraged by my lack of spiritual progress and exhausted by my efforts. David points to the very same thing. He says, I'm struggling, God. I know I'm called. I know you put me here. You chose me, the least likely of my brothers, the least likely in the kingdom to be picked. And you chose me. But I struggle with an identity. And God says, I'm going to use your circumstances, your struggles, to teach you continually that you got to cry out for help for me. you got to continually seek after me. You can't take this on yourself and think that you can do it on your own. And when the Bible speaks of our hearts, divided heart, he's speaking of the real you, the essence of who you really are. I love what Paul Tripp says. He refers to it as the steering wheel of your life the steering wheel of your life. Everything we do is controlled by our heart's desires. And God makes it clear he desires our heart because this is what determines what we seek after. Our problem with this divided heart is here we are, we're driving down the narrow road pursuing after Jesus. We've got our eyes fixed on Jesus as was mentioned earlier and our hearts can be tuned closely to him. But very quickly along the way, there begins to be opportunities for detours popping up everywhere. There could be anger, adultery, greed, deceit, lust. And God tells you in his word, steer clear of these things. Do not let your heart veer off to these sins. These will steal your heart and take away your ability to glorify God in your life. But what happens? Our hearts begin to feel attention there, don't they? Well, that looks good. That's appealing to me. That feels right. And we begin to consider the promises that Satan says, these sins are going to provide and come through for us. And we're tempted to believe him. But at the same time, what, what's happened? The Holy Spirit's saying, hmm, John, hmm, don't do that. Don't go there. Stay on the narrow road. Stay focused upon Jesus. And this is a divided heart. And I mentioned in my email a couple weeks ago, for those 12 people that read it, that a, our hearts are made up, I believe, from Scripture of our mind. They're made up of our will, and they're made up of our emotion. And so sometimes our emotions can tell us, wow, that just seems right to do. It seems right to go there. It seems right to veer off and take that course. And then our minds oftentimes will begin to justify it. We create a system of justification why it's okay to do, go this way. I'm really maybe not leaving course and following something else. This is okay. And we begin to our minds to create some reason, some, uh, some system that allows us to do the things that God says don't to do. And at this point, depending upon the sin, many of us can muster up the willpower to determine not to indulge in a particular sin, even when our minds and emotions are pulling us away. And I think this is the essence of a divided heart, a divided heart. Emotionally, I want to go this way. Mentally, I'm making excuses for this way. And a lot of times it's our willpower that sometimes wins out, especially when it's a public thing that people would know, and it would be shame on us, or maybe we get busted and caught over this. But I think we have to be careful with willpower. And Pastor John Piper says it super well, and there's no way I can say it any better than this, so I'll just read this quote. He says, Yes, I know there is a willpower path to holiness, but to the degree that it succeeds, it fails, because with every sin that you conquer by willpower, Seven devils of self-righteousness come in and take its place. Willpower, conquering of sin, is not conquering of sin. It's an exaltation of self. And I think of the Pharisees when I think about this quote. I think about the Pharisees who said, you know, we fast two times a week. We give a tenth of all that we do. And what does Jesus say? He's like, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be cleaned as well. They were doing the stuff. They appeared to be going the right way, but it was all based upon their strength. And so, how does this work for us? Joe can be saying, Never had an affair, 50 years of marriage, and never ever had an affair on my wife. But he's been driving down Lust Street. His entire marriage. Or Betty, she says, I'm following Jesus. I go and serve in a homeless shelter. I give him my time. But she knows that greed constantly has her number. And she's been cruising down that highway. Divided heart. And David says, I need an undivided heart. Proverbs 16.2 All a person's ways seem pure to them. But motives are weighed by the Lord. We can easily fool ourselves about our motives. We can pretend we're doing things for God. In reality, they're just all driven by our own selfish motives. And it's important to remember that sin doesn't always look like sin, does it? Sin doesn't always look like sin. Let me switch illustrations for a second from driving to running. When I ran my first marathon in Tallahassee, a lot of it was down the, the, this trail, the St. Mark's Trail. Very lonely, very boring, not a lot of runners. And believe it or not, at mile 20, this is crazy, but at mile 20, there was a tent set up along the running trail, and there were five or six people sitting under a tent, and they were passing out beer and, and trying to entice people to come and sit in the tent, quit the race, and just have some beer with them. And they had signs. Have a beer. Come and have a beer. There are a couple takers, yeah, by mile 20 on that. That's If you run a marathon, you know or heard about it. Mile 20, that's like the critical juncture of, of, a, of a marathon. But you know what else was on that trail, on that run? Running on through there, park bench after park bench. And he was saying to me, come have a seat. Come sit down. Come lay down. You see the picture? Some sins are in your face. Some are very subtle. doesn't seem like a big deal. It's a park bench. But either one, a beer under a tent or the park bench, they both were tempting me to stop running the race. And that's what I'm afraid most of us do. We look at the list of sins and we're like, not me. Not me, that other guy, that other guy, that other person, that other lady. Yet your heart and my heart follow after things that are every bit pulling us away from running the race that God's called us to run. So the question is, how do we win the battle for our hearts? We must continually admit our weakness and our need for help. Look verse 11. Two of my favorite verses, 11 and 12, in the whole Bible. David says, teach me your way, O Lord. I don't know about you, but I can be pretty stubborn and not very teachable at times. You can't live the Christian life without being teachable. David says, teach me. I'm willing to sit at your feet, God. I'm willing to admit that I don't have it figured out. And I'm willing to listen. Make me teachable. And the cross of Jesus is a constant reminder of just how desperate our need for God's grace is. It's a constant reminder. When you look at the cross, think, wow, my sin was so bad that Jesus had to come and die. I need you, God. And so if your sin is a little bit of anger or a whole lot of adultery, you need Jesus. You need to sit at his feet. You need to say, teach me. Your way, O oh Lord, because we're under siege. We're constantly, we're in the battle. And our strength and our willpower will fail. Say, God, I'm ready to be taught. So he says, Teach me your way. Verse 11 Teach me your way, O oh Lord, that I may walk in your truth. I want to follow you. I want to want to follow you. I need your help. I need you to teach me so I can live in your truth so that I can have. Look at verse 11. He says, Unite my heart. So I can have a whole heart. I can be whole and true. And I want this so I can fear your name. The heart's deceitful, Scripture says. It's desperately wicked. I need this to be united. And I need this to to be united to fear your name. And I think we see here, by fear your name, he's talking about God's awesomeness, his, his power, his inexpressible holiness, his perfect righteousness, his irresistible power, his sovereign grace. All these things that are characteristics of God, He's saying, I need this heart so I can fear you, so I can see you properly, so I can know who you are and get a bigger glimpse of you. Why should we fear God? Look at skip back to verse 8 through 10. He says, There's none like you among the gods. O God, or O Lord, I'm sorry, nor are there any works like yours. Look, I know we're thinking at this point, we're thinking a little idols in the temples, but let's apply that to modern-day idols, right? God, there is none like you among the gods. God, you're better than that novel I'm reading. Jesus, your word is more precious than that TV show. God, your love for me is greater than my family and my friends. And so I'm seeking after you, God, because there's none like you. Verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So David said, it's all about you, God. This is not about self-improvement. It's not about being a better you. It's about God and him alone. And he says, all nations... That's the point of it all. All nations will come and worship you. It's all for God's glory. It's all for God's glory. And David points to a time that we see in Revelation to come where Revelation 7-9 says, After this I look, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. David prophetically looks ahead to a time where all nations will be represented and bow before God. God is great. He's worthy of worship. Not half-hearted, you can have this part of my heart, worship. He's worthy of all our worship. And maybe you're thinking right now, you know, Got some weak faith. Need some stronger faith. I got weak faith. Here's my encouragement to you today. Don't seek after greater faith. Seek after a great God. Don't seek greater faith. Seek God, his greatness. That's what David does. He sees the beauty and character and power and majesty. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I'll walk in your truth. Give me this undivided heart. Why? So I can properly fear your name. So I can see you as you really, truly are. And look at what he says in verse 12. When this happens, I, I, if you answer this prayer, I give you thanks, O Lord, with all my heart, my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So even before David's prayer is answered, He's anticipating praising the Lord with this united heart, with his whole heart. And he will honor the Lord's name. Look what it says in verse 12 I'll glorify your name forever. He envisions a long term lifestyle of praise, not just an occasional response in worship. Did you hear that? Because a heart that's divided can do a fairly good job of worshiping on Sunday. You can do a very good job of maybe even living a fairly moral lifestyle. But when a heart is united, when it's not divided, when it's united, then we can say, I will honor the Lord's name forevermore. This is a lifestyle. It's not an event or a service. It's not a night of worship. It's a lifestyle of worship. But here's the beauty again. Listen, God is faithful. God is faithful to you if you're his child. He's not quitting on you. He's not giving up on you. He loves you. And he will use suffering to get your attention. If you're not living for his purposes, if you've detoured greatly, and your heart has been taken by other gods, by sins, you're living a double life, but you're his child, he will, he promises, he will get your attention, and he'll draw you back to himself and will you back to himself. We always end with our head, our heart, and our hands. Here's the head, and and, and again, I just couldn't bring myself to steal this from John Piper because it's so good, and I couldn't reword it to say it any better. He says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. That's it. Willpower will fail you. You will constantly be detouring until you learn to delight in God. To set at his feet, to admit daily, I advocate every morning, right off the bat, God, today I need you. God, if you don't show me the path, I can get through this day and I can... Make people think that I'm not detoured because my sins are park bench sins. But you're not fulfilling God's purposes and will for your life. You might as well, in some regards, be doing those big sins, right? Because every bit of missing God's will. I'm not advocating that you go and commit those sins that damage other people. But I'm showing you that for God's kingdom purposes, nothing is accomplished if we're just driving down other paths other than Jesus. So, superior satisfaction. Psalm 37 says it this way. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's not a name it and claim it, like God's going to give you whatever. It's saying, delight in God, and you'll see. Your affections will begin to change. Your priorities will begin to change. Your emotions, your mind And your will will begin to change. Do you believe that? Heart. Heart change happens with deep repentance. God, show me my heart because I can't see. The deception of sin has blinded me so bad. God, I need you to search me, I need you to examine me. And we do that every single day. God, I need you to shine your light of holiness into my heart and show me where my heart's divided and hands. Willpower may be enough to get you started, but it will take habits to sustain change. Willpower may get you somewhere, but not for long. You need daily habits. You need consistent habits. You're taking part in one of those habits right now. You're here. I hope you're here faithfully and regularly. But this is just one spiritual discipline you need. You need his word. You need to go to him in prayer. You need people who are going to be in your life, speaking truth, helping you in those blind spots and calling out those sins that you either like or you refuse to acknowledge. God has given you so many opportunities for grace. You develop habits around those grace disciplines. Will you do that? Delight in God. Repent. Allow God to show you your sin and do that every single day and develop those habits just to consistently be at his feet. Let's pray. God, I'll be the first to admit, raise my hand in this room, that my heart is divided so often. I continue to struggle with my will, my way, things that are not holy and righteous. And God, I pray that you will help me and each one in here, help us to be willing to admit that, not just in this moment, but as we step into those habits of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, every day, help us to admit that. And the top of our prayer list is, we need you, God. We are poor and we are needy, and we have a divided heart, and we need you to unite that heart so we can fear your name. Help us to see you in your holiness and you in your greatness. And, God, thank you for your patience and your long-suffering. Thank you for your mercy. And, God, we thank you for the promise that you will will finish what you started, that you won't give up on your children. He who began a good work in you will complete it. We thank you for that hope. Our hope rests in you and in your faithfulness, definitely not in ours. We pray in Jesus' name.